Good morning. My name is Rod Ellis. I am not the pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church, and I'm, I'm kind of sorry about that, except for the means I get to stand up here, so I'm really excited about that. Our pastor is Tim Harris. If you're here for the first time, please come back when he's preaching. I think if you'll talk to any of us who are normally here, we would say he's amazing. He just really is. I was thinking a lot about Tim. I don't know why, the last couple of days, I guess because I'm preparing to preach. And um, You know how some people, after you've known him a while, you, you kind of, you know, I've had enough now. Um, Tim's the opposite of that. I've spent a lot of time with that man over the last five years, and, and every time I'm with him, it seems to be better. And I love that about our pastor. Those of you who have been here for 10 or 15 or 20 years know even more what I'm describing. I am thankful to be able to serve with Tim Harris. Um, so come back sometime when Tim's preaching. But I'm glad you're here today, and I think I have a good word for you this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 4. John 4, <clears throat> a story you may know, familiar with the woman at the well. Um, you may not be familiar with the parts we're going to talk about, so kind of prepare yourself for that. And while you're turning to John 4, I want to tell you about, a little bit about my daughter, Catherine, um, who's here today. And I'm not going to look at her while I'm talking, because she'll, yeah. Um, Catherine and, and some of her friends have a, a habit that I really like. It, it's kind of cool. They'll see something happen that you or I might think is a coincidence. You know, like, they'll say, God, I'd really love to have a close parking space today. And then one opens up, and we would, you know, maybe go, yeah, right, like God did that. But they'll say, look at God. Look at God. Or when something great happens at church, especially in the worship ministry, if we're talking about that around the dinner table or whatever, and we talk about how great it was, she'll say, well, look at God. I love that. I love that reminder. Yesterday, she was at the mall, and, and some of you may have heard on the news, there was a, a guy who evidently stole a bunch of guns from the sporting goods store there and, and threatened to, like, shoot people up at the mall, like, at our mall. Um, Catherine was there, and she and her friends were whisked back to the, to the storeroom where they were kept safe. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the security personnel at the mall and for the police who were on scene quickly and, and made sure everything was secure. And you know, it's really tempting to say, good job, mall security, good job, police force, good job, store employees. You knew what to do and you did it. And I am so grateful that they knew what they did and, did, and that they did it. But I want to say, look at God who kept all those people safe. Look at God. Today, I want us to look at God maybe in a way that you aren't used to or haven't before, or maybe just in a way that you need to be reminded. And I just hope, I pray, that this passage in John 4 will help us look at God. I'm going to start in verse 3. John chapter 4, verse 3. I'm going to read this long, incredible story. So Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria on the way, and eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew, if you only knew the gift God has for you and, and who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you 
living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here and get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus said. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands. And you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship and we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, believe me, woman. Believe me, dear woman. The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, oh, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. My journey into worship was shaped early on by a, an author named Robert Weber. Robert Weber was a professor at Wheaton College for a long time, taught New Testament theology, um, history of the church, that kind of stuff, has written dozens and dozens of books. But his first book was called Worship is a Verb. It was released in 1985, and the statement I'm about to tell you seems like a no-brainer today, but in 1985 it was radical. Robert Weber said, worship is not something done to us or for us, but by us. Worship is not something done to you, it's not something done for you. It's something done by you. When we come to this passage and explore what spirit and truth means, it's important that we remember worship is not something we attend. It's something we do. It's not an event where the folks on stage address the folks in the seats. It's an opportunity week after week for all of us together to celebrate Jesus, to remember what he's done, and to do so in the way he described in spirit and truth. And knowing I was going to talk about spirit and truth for a while now, I've had a bunch of conversations. Like the last couple of weeks, three weeks, I've just been asking people, what do you think it means, spirit and truth? I mean, I've asked like people here, and I've asked friends out in, in, in just texting land, and, and other worship pastors, and, and some preachers, and people that I thought would have a pretty clear answer. What does it mean, spirit and truth? And it's been really interesting to me the diversity of answers. 
In other words, it kind of means this to me, or I really think of it this way, or, or whatever. And it's been hard to find anybody who has a clear, concise, direct way of answering, what does spirit and truth mean? And, and at first, I was kind of troubled by that. I'm thinking, okay, you guys are like, you do this for a living. Shouldn't you know? And then I remember just a chapter earlier, Jesus is hanging out with Nicodemus. He was a religious leader. And he was baffled by the conversation Jesus had with him, right? Born again. Born again? I can't go back in there. And Jesus talked about the spirit and the wind and how you just, you can't grasp it. I think this is a spiritual concept that's difficult to grasp. But I hope in the next 30 minutes or so that to help us be able to really get a hold of it because I think it might matter and change the way that we walk with him, the way that we gather with him. So let's be direct. Let's be right out of the gate. Simply put, spirit is heart. Spirit is heart. Spirit is feeling. It's emotion. It's the, it's the warm fuzzies. It's the, I sense the spirit in this place. Remember the old chorus? There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. It's just a feeling. It's really hard to nail down. It's hard to be able to say, this is what the spirit is. It is because it's more of a feeling than a term. Spirit is heart. And truth is head or mind. Truth is what you think. It's words. It's the stuff that gives accuracy. It's what we do when we've got this warm, fuzzy thing and we don't know how to describe it, but we try. So we apply truth to spirit. It's the words we use to articulate vision. Truth is the stuff that's sturdy. Truth is Jesus. And he came full of truth, even as he was the truth. And Jesus says, this is how we worship. We worship in spirit and in truth with our hearts and with our minds. That's as clear and direct as I know how to describe it, but there's a whole lot underneath it, so let's keep going. Now, as, when it comes to your personality, you're probably more of a thinker or a feeler. Some of you have taken the Myers-Briggs personality indicator test. It's kind of fun. Makes the rounds on Facebook every once in a while. Hey, what are you? I'm an ISTJ. Actually, that's what my wife is. Um, I'm an EF, ENFP, so is Pastor Tim. All of that's just fun and funny to think about. But, but one of the spectrums is on a spectrum of, one, of, of 20 down at this end being I'm a thinker and 20 down at this end being I'm a feeler. Where do you fall on the spectrum? When you make decisions, are you more worried about the way people feel or about the accuracy? Just give me the facts. When you're thinking about, well, when you're considering a decision, what drives your decision making? Is it, is it the stuff you compile or is it the impact it's going to have on people? And all of us are on that spectrum somewhere. The ones of us who are at one end or the other wonder how in the world the other end gets along. Right? Like, you just figured out, if you're a thinker, why you think all of us feelers are weird. Because you just don't understand. Well, it's just the facts. I mean, the facts say this. Yeah, but what about the way it's going to make them feel? And so we have this kind of tension with each other or complementary nature with each other of understanding whether we're more of a thinker or more of a feeler. Here's what's fascinating about that. You don't get a choice when it comes to worship. You don't come and operate in your comfort zone and go, hey, I'm a feeler, so I'm just going to be all feely today. Or I'm a thinker, I'm just going to be all thinker today. No, Jesus says when you come to worship, you come in spirit and truth with your head and with your heart, with your mind and your emotion. You bring everything you have, including the parts of you that you're not so comfortable with. I didn't hear a single amen after that. Um, thank you so 
very much. Um, interestingly, Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15, but all through chapter 14, he's talking about praying and singing and worshiping. It's a passage we don't talk about much because it has speaking in tongues in it. So as Baptists, we just kind of skip over it. But he says something really profound. In 1 Corinthians 14, 15, he says, I will pray with the mind and I will pray with the spirit also. I will sing with the mind and I will sing with the spirit also. Same words in Greek that Jesus used in John 4. And so Jesus teams up with Paul, and they say to us, it's not enough to just think about Jesus or just to feel something. You've got to do both. That's what it means to pray. That's what it means to sing. That's what it means to worship. Now, we can pretend that we've actually worshiped if we disengaged our thinker or our feeler. But you know, that's kind of like getting on a plane up there at the Bowling Green Airport, and the plane has one wing, and you expect it to go somewhere. It just can't. You know what it will do? It'll spin around in circles really fast and stay put. I don't think that's what Jesus intends for us. I think he made us to fly. I think he made us to soar where the eagles are. I think he made us so that when we worship, we're not spinning around in a circle at all. We are catching lift and flying with him to do all that he invites us into doing. That's why we have to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, as a church, you know, I think we're pretty good at the truth side. My guess is if you've been here for a while, you would agree with that. Pastor Tim is absolutely brilliant. He has a PhD. He's just a smart dude. He thinks deeply and profoundly about things, and his sermons aren't hard to understand, but they are very engaging of our minds. I remember when I was interim here five years ago, and I was sitting down here, and, and somebody over there, I don't know who it was. I hope they're, you know, wonderful people, I'm sure they are, um, their kid had to go to the bathroom during the sermon, and they got up and left. And I thought, no, Tim's talking. You can't leave. You're going to miss like 45 seconds of gold. That's our pastor. He's that good. So make sure you go to the bathroom before you come into the service. And <laughs> He engages our heads really, really well. We are a thoughtful congregation. And I love that. You know what else I love? As a song leader, as a worship leader, I love the fact that when I lead singing, you're thinking about the words. Like, you pay attention to them. Some of you have asked me questions. Do you think this lyric is okay? Like, if we sing this, is, is, is this wrong? And others of you say, you know, this, this word really spoke to me or this phrase really caught me today. I love the fact that we sing thoughtfully, that as we are worshiping through music, we have this engagement of our heads. I love that about our church. More than any church I've been a part of, we do that. And I love that about you. Thank you for being that kind of worshiping church. And then we have pockets of people. There's one right there. And, and there's often one right over here somewhere. Pockets of people, you've seen them. They're the people that get the spirit part right. Some of you think they're a little freaky. You wonder if they're okay, but you can see it on their face. Sometimes the tears are strolling down their cheeks. Sometimes their arms are lifted high. They glow like you wonder if they had radioactive treatment recently. I mean, they just there's something different about them, and you wonder. You thinkers, you wonder, should we get them some help? Could we calm them down? Maybe some Xanax would be helpful. I, I don't know what it is exactly, but, but we just worry a little bit about the people who are the feelers among us because they're just pockets of us. Jesus says, you don't get that option. It's spirit and truth. It's heart and mind. This is how, this is how we worship. 
So let's do a moment of self-evaluation. Let me ask you this. When you're alone with Jesus, you know, early in the morning before anybody gets up or late at night after everybody goes to bed or in the middle of the day, you take a long walk just to pray and be with Jesus. Can you be still and not think anything? Can you practice the presence of Christ without thought? It's easy to engage your mind without your heart. How are you doing it engaging your heart without your mind? Now, I'm not advocating for that as a lifestyle. I think it's very dangerous, in fact. Heart without mind leads to heresy, and mind without heart leads to arrogance and condescension. Let's not go one or the other. It's both. But what about those moments where I'm just going to be with... You remember Mary and Martha? Martha's in the kitchen being busy, thinking about all the things that need to be done. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, simply basking in his presence. It doesn't say in that story that Jesus said a thing. How are you doing at just being with Jesus? What if I were to say, let's take the next three minutes. That's a long time, 180 seconds. What if we took the next three minutes and we're not going to say a thing? We're not going to do a thing? You're not supposed to think. You're just going to feel the affection that you have to Jesus and the affection that Jesus has for you. Would that freak you out? Would it feel more like bondage than freedom? Yes. For most of us, for me, it would. That'd be forever. I would wonder if that guy had lost his mind. So we're not going to do that. But I would encourage you at home sometime, when you've got a few minutes, I know those happen rarely, but when you've got a few minutes, just practice the presence of Christ. Music is great for that. Of course, I have to talk about music. I'm the music guy. But think about the, Saul, the story of Saul and Jonathan back in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, Saul and David. This is early on. Saul's a king. He's kind of lost it a little bit. He's getting frustrated. His spirit is troubled, and he can't get anybody to help him. And so he calls for David and said, David, would you come and play some music for me? And David walks in with his, you know, giant harp. Actually, it probably wasn't. Um, his little lute, guitar, whatever he had. And he played for Saul. And the, and the story goes, the text says that Saul found shalom. Instrumental music brought the peace of God to a troubled spirit. Heart, mind, spirit, and truth. Okay, so I, I get it. Like, I'm the music guy. I'm talking about worship. I, of course, I'm going to talk about stuff like this. But does it really matter? Is there a so what factor here? You've read this story, some of you, a hundred times or more. And, and this isn't the place where you land. You land at other places. But does this part matter? I, I want to suggest to you that it does. And the first reason is this. Until worship becomes about God, not about you and me, but until worship becomes about God, then our lives can't become about him either. This is the best shot we have. You have left all of the craziness of the world to step into this place where his presence is easy to experience. This is the best shot we've got. If you can't make this hour, if I can't make this hour about God and not about me, I have no hope of making the other 167 hours this week about him. This is the best shot we've got. When worship becomes about God, then our lives can actually be lived for other people because we have found everything we need in the presence of the Father. Go back to the text. The woman at the well, the, the promiscuous woman, the call girl, she 
has this spirit and truth encounter with Jesus, and it changed everything about her. Everything. She was the laughing stock. She was the one that nobody wanted to talk to at the well because, you know, five husbands, she's shacking up now. Nobody wants to talk to her. That's the girl she was. When she goes back, she becomes the town evangelist. <laughs> Who would have thought? That's the power of making spirit and truth encounters about Jesus. I am the Messiah, he said to her. Oh, my goodness, it changed everything. That's not all. Until God has your heart in worship, I don't think he'll have your heart the rest of the week either. This is, again, this is the place we recalibrate. This is the place where we find our heart. It finds its place in God's heart. Our heart communes with his heart, and we go, oh, God, I give you all of my heart, all of it. There's nothing left in reserve for anybody else or anything else. I give you all of my heart. When we do that well here, we have a, we have a chance of doing that the rest of the week. Language has limits. And so if you're always using your thinker in worship and not your feeler in worship, then you might be missing out on some of that communion with God. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. You know, Pastor Tim will sometimes say, especially if he's presenting the gospel and he's talking to people who aren't yet saved, they'll say, I'm not asking you to feel something. I'm asking you to believe something. I think that's really wise. But for the Christ follower, the rules change. Jesus does ask you to feel something. In fact, he requires it. Engage your heart with the Father in worship. And the rest of your week, possibilities become endless. But not just that. Until you give your mind in worship, he won't fill your thoughts during the week. Some of you struggle with your thought life. I've prayed for you about that because you've asked me to. Some of you, it's just hard. Things get up in there and they are going a little wacky. If you can't focus your head on who Jesus is in this time, how in the world are we going to be able to focus our thoughts on him during the rest of the time he gives us? It's really interesting to me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 is one of my favorite verses. I'm going to paraphrase it just a tiny bit. You are, you, you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do the things he made for you. That's Ephesians 2.10. You are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus to do the things he prepared for you to do long ago. You are a masterpiece. But you can't do the things of God unless you're thinking about the things of God, and that all starts when you worship him, when you worship him alone and when you worship him together. So until God has your mind during this hour, he's not likely to have your mind the rest of the week. I, I love in this tension between heart and mind, maybe it's not a tension as much as it is a frustration to be fully engaged with both. My, one of my mentors is Bob Coughlin, and Bob wrote in, in a great book, he said, every church who claims to be spirit-led must be word-fed. If we want to know more of the Spirit's power in our lives, we would be wise to fill ourselves with the riches of his word. Fill your mind with the riches of his word and dream what he has for you. One more. When we worship in spirit and truth, we are compelled to tell others. I love this about this story, and it freaks me out a little. 
It's in verse 39, I think it is. Yeah, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town, the town where the call girl is from, many of the Samaritans in that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. They believed because of a testimony. They didn't meet Jesus. They just heard about him from this woman. When you have a spirit and truth encounter like she had at the well, it can change everything about the way you think about Jesus, the way you feel about Jesus, and it will compel you to tell others about Jesus. That's part of maybe why we struggle with evangelism because we're not worshiping well. Maybe if when we come into this place or when you do this on your own uh, individual worship time or gathered worship time, maybe when we begin to use all of our heart and all of our mind and we engage them both fully with Jesus Christ, we are so transformed by that experience that we can't help but tell somebody about what he did for us. I don't know for sure, but I think maybe that would help. One more thing about this passage in this way. John 4 is not just about a woman at a well. It's about a people on a mountain. The woman was a part of a community. She was a part of a village. She was a part of a tribe. She was a part of a group of people called the Samaritans, and they were trying to figure out how to worship God all the time. And Jesus says, hey, y'all, it's not about how y'all worship. It's about how y'all worship in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking people, people, plural, a group of people who will worship in spirit and truth. And so individual worship time, when you worship on your own, when you say to Jesus, I love you so much, when you're praying to him and you say, I praise you, Jesus, for all you've done for me, I thank you for the many ways I can see you at work in my life. I just want to praise you for who you are. You're amazing. That's individual worship time. But when we come together for group worship time, for together worship, it can be a little harder It can be a little harder. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says, make every effort. Make every effort. I don't like that word. I want things to be easy. I like to make things easy for the people around me. But Jesus says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Make effort. When you come to worship together, there are things you'll have to give up and in ways you'll have to step up to worship together in spirit and truth. Let's go back a little earlier in the story. Verse 20. The woman starts the conversation about worship, probably because she wants to change the subject, with the statement, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You may not know this, I, I didn't learn it until just the last few years, but thousands of years ago, every people group, every, every, organ, every yeah, nation or tribe or whatever, their God lived somewhere. God was not omnipresent. God didn't exist everywhere. God wasn't the way we think of God now. God was in a place, and so there was a temple of Zeus. You know who lived there? Zeus. There was a temple of Apollo and Artemis, and you know who lived in those temples? Apollo and Artemis. There was a temple of Yahweh. You know who lived there? Yahweh, Jesus' dad, God, lived there. And so this woman at the well was kind of frustrated. Wait a minute. There can only be one place where he lives. So is it on the Temple Mount or is it on Mount Gerizim? It's really, really interesting to me that the dispute among those tribes wasn't about which God to worship. It was about how to worship God. Christians are pretty good at making that same thing happen, aren't we? We fight about it. 
The best way to worship is the Presbyterian way or the Catholic way. It's the Nazarene way or the Church of God way or the Church of Christ way. It's with piano and organ and a choir with robes on. Or it's with a rock band and blue jeans and t-shirts. It's about wearing hats on stage or no hats allowed in church. It's about all kinds of things. It's about communion every week or communion every quarter. It's about the emphasis on the preaching or the emphasis on the liturgy. It's about, it's about whatever we make it about. Sometimes we run out of things to fight about, so we just start making them up. Like the woman at the well, this mountain or that mountain, and Jesus says, oh, oh, quit looking at the mountain and look at me. Quit looking at the mountain and look at me. It's a fascinating story. Early 1900s in Russia. Russia, early 1900s. Actually, it's 1917. Two meetings happen on different houses, at different houses on the same street. Okay, 1917, Russia. Any of you history buffs in Russian history already know where this goes. I had no idea. I'm not a history buff, and let alone in Russia. I kind of like it. There's this meeting down here where the, the church leaders are talking about how to do worship, and they are talking about it. They're having a genuine discussion. Tempers flare. People get angry. People stand up from the table and shout and scream. Meanwhile, just a few blocks away on the same street, there's a little group of young rebels talking about how to overthrow the government. You've probably heard of them. They're the Bolsheviks. So over here, the Bolsheviks are thinking, what if we could have an entire country where there's no place for God? Down here at this end of the street, there's a whole group of church leaders thinking, we've got to get this right. Should the candles be 18 inches or 22 inches? No kidding, that's what they fought over. What if they had been fighting for the spread of the gospel? What if they had been praying for the Bolsheviks? We so often focus on the wrong things. This mountain, that mountain, candles, the length of the candles, jeans or suits, old songs or new songs. And Jesus says, quit making it about the stuff and make it about me again. Not always, but I suspect there are some times we fight over the external things of worship to avoid the internal battles of our souls. The woman at the well did that. She was using all the religious talk to hide the real issues in her life. That's why she changed the subject. And you all know this. Religion is a great place to hide from God. It's easy. You want to get away from God? Just come to church and talk church talk. Religion is a really easy place to hide from God. We use the external to escape the internal. The Pharisees did it. You remember whitewashed tombs? That whole story. The woman at the well did it too. You heard it in the text. She was looking for love in all the wrong places. Time after time, she gave herself in love, and she received men in love. Fascinatingly enough, I love, I love language. So one of the words in Hebrew for love is dod, D-O-D. It's, it's really more about the physical nature of love than about other elements of love. 
And one of the aspects of this word, according to the Old Testament scholar Paul House, is that it's two souls mingling together. When there is physical intimacy, it's not just physical intimacy. There's soul intimacy. Souls mingling together. This woman had mingled her soul with five husbands and was now mingling her soul with a live-in boyfriend. And Jesus says, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. Mingle your soul with me. Mingle your soul with me. You'll find what you've been looking for. So easy, isn't it? On this side of that story to go, that woman. Can you imagine that she did that? But you and I do it too. You mingle your soul with things you shouldn't, don't you? Like your children, maybe? Or alcohol? Or shopping? Or this one really got to me, success? I sometimes want to be successful far more than I want Jesus. God help me. What is it that you mingle your soul with that's taking up space that Jesus wants to fill? Like Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, I want you to hear him say to you today, look at God, mingle your soul with his. That's what spirit and truth does for us. We quit looking in all the wrong places like this mountain or that one, and we start looking to our Father. St. Augustine said it 1,600 years ago. You, you guys know this quote. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Jesus invites us to find our soul's rest in the Father. But how do we do that? Jesus encouraged the woman at the well to move from the external to the internal, to shift from what to who, to move from where to through whom. Worship is more personal than circumstantial. It's more soulish than stylish. It's about your soul not about the style. I, I, I just, this blew me away. You know, in, in Scripture, there are typically layers of truth, and so things can mean this, they can mean two different things at the same time, not in opposition to each other, but complementary to each other. Does that make sense? For example, spirit and truth is mind and heart, but you know who the spirit is, don't you? And you know who the truth is, don't you? The spirit is the Holy Spirit, and the truth is Jesus he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father unless they come through me. I am the truth, he said, and the Holy Spirit. That, this just blew my mind. You're invited into fellowship that has existed since before there was time. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have been in perfect and unblemished fellowship since before there was a history and will be until after there is a history, and they invite you to join them in worship. What an invitation. What an invitation. One more. One more. When the Jews went from Judea to Galilee, they took the long way or road. You saw that in the very first verse. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, no, he didn't. I mean, I know the Bible writer said that, and I'm not arguing with John. He, he did, 
He had to, though, because God told him to, not because geographically he had to. Because the, 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 the custom was, if you needed to go from Judea, down here in the south, to Galilee, up here in the north, if you're a Jew, you cross the river, and go way far east, and then you go way up here. It's about three times as long. You cross the river again to get to Galilee. I think maybe the Holy Spirit whispered to Jesus one day and said, hey, go straight up. Just go straight up. Somebody there I want you to meet. And Jesus said, okay. And so he had to go through Samaria because he had an appointment. The lady didn't know there was an appointment. Jesus knew there was an appointment, but he had to go. Don't miss this. When Jesus left heaven, it was the hardest thing in the world to give up the glory and the majesty of perfect and un hindered communion with the Father and the Spirit to come to earth with skin on. He had never known it was, what it was like to be bound until he had skin on. That must have been so hard. And so it was so much easier to just go through Samaria. But he had to go. Jesus will go that far for you. He did it for her, and he will do it for you. He has done it for you. At Jacob's will in Sychar, Samaria, the woman asks, where should we look for God? And Jesus demonstrates just how far God will go in looking for you. God is looking for you. Today, right now, he's looking for you. He got here before we did. Jesus got to the well before the woman did. God got here before you did today. He was waiting for you to come in. He wants to have this encounter with you where, where your soul mingles with him in spirit and in truth. Because when that happens, everything changes. When your head and your heart encounter the person of Jesus Christ, everything changes. When you have been found when you know you are loved and accepted, not because of who you are, but because of who he is, everything changes. In just a minute, we're going to sing one of my favorite old hymns. Most of you have sung it as much or more than me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth, they will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look at it again. Turn your eyes upon who? Yeah, not this mountain, not that mountain. Not I like this song or I don't like that song. Not what is she wearing. Not I wish he would wear that. Don't look at the mountain. Look at Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Have you ever tried? Have you ever tried? Like those, those alone times that you get with Jesus and you're just trying to be with him. Have you ever tried to picture his face? What did his jawline look like? Was it firm and strong? Or was it more sloping and gentle? What about his skin? Was it olive complexion? Did he have acne as a teenager? What about his nose? Was it a big, like, Middle Eastern nose, you think? Facial hair. Do you think he had facial hair? Did he groom it really well and care for it so that the edges were just so? What about his eyes? 
What about his eyes? Can you see them? What color are they? Do you see how piercing they are? Not with judgment, but with acceptance. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth, all of the things about what happens when you worship, they grow strangely dim. It's like they don't matter anymore because you know what? They don't matter in the light of his glory and grace. So what's your next step? What do you do with this? Well, I think the most important thing that we, well, maybe the most immediate thing we do is we just worship. We just choose. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put all of my attention, all of my affection on Jesus. I'm going to choose today, now. I'm going to choose that. And next time I'm alone with him, I'm going to choose that. And next time we're together, I'm going to choose that. I think that's one of the best and most immediate steps we can take. But I want you to ask yourself, is God sensing, are you sensing that God is asking you to give up something or to step up to something? Maybe, maybe after a spirit and truth encounter with Jesus, there's somebody you just feel really compelled to tell your story to. That's all the woman did. Come and see. He told me everything I ever did. Did he really? Did he tell her everything she ever did? I think, she, I think he just said, five husbands, one guy. That's pretty much all he said. But to her, she felt completely known and completely accepted. Jesus does that for us. Is there somebody he's compelling you to tell that to? I don't know what it is, but I do know this. If he's asking you, he's going to make a way for you to do it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, there are so many things competing for our attention and our affection. Even now, even in this very moment, we are easily distracted. We are quickly diverted. Help us. If only for the next four minutes, help us to focus all of our attention and all of our affection on you. And then help us do it over and over and over again so that we can worship you in spirit and truth. And we can give our heart to you in worship and all the other hours of the week. We can give our mind to you in gathered worship and all the other hours of the week. We can make worship about you and not about us so that we can live our lives for everybody else all week so that we can, so that we can feel your compulsion to tell others about what you have done for us. Make us worshipers so that you can make us all you hope we will become. Help us to turn our eyes on you. We pray, Jesus, in your beautiful name. Amen. Would you stand, please?